This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. I've got Dr. Nathan Finn with us on the other line. We're going to be discussing his book called The Baptist Story, which is entirely about the history of the Baptist Church. It's going to be a fascinating episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Yes, this is the show for you. If you're not aware, Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. If you've been blessed by our ministry here and you want to support in any uh, way you can support, uh, just uh, look down into the, the description of this video. There are links there for both PayPal and Patreon. You can support us on PayPal as a one-time gift, or you can give on Patreon as low as five bucks a month. You can continually support us here at Remnant Radio. A lot of really exciting content coming down uh, there on the Patreon. One of those things uh, is the book club that we're working on. We have uh, a book club. Just go to patreon.com forward slash the Remnant Radio. And every Saturday I upload a link for the next chapter of a book in our book club, Kingdom of the Colts by Walter Martin. Uh, It's a cool uh, book. We've gone through Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Theophysy. Uh, We went through uh, uh, Buddhism a couple weeks ago. Man, lots of really exciting and interesting stuff. Uh, Make sure to check it out in the link in the description. You can be a part of that. 30, 40 of us gather together uh, to discuss that book. Uh, Michael Rantry is not with me today, but he will be soon back with us, so not to fret. Uh, but without further ado, I want to introduce you to our guest, uh, Dr. Nathan Finn. Uh, hey, would you tell us about our uh, about yourself and your ministry before we dive into the subject matter today? So my name is Nathan Finn, and I am by training uh, an historical and systematic theologian. Uh, but have written far more uh, about church history uh, than I have theology, and have really focused uh, most of my ministry on uh, the history, theology, spirituality. That is my tradition, uh, and so I'm very interested in that as kind of a uh, live, living in two worlds, on the one hand being an insider practitioner, and on the other hand trying to uh, study the Baptist tradition as a scholar. Uh, so I'm always trying to navigate Uh, those two things. I teach at North Greenville University, where I serve as the provost and dean of the university faculty. Uh, So I'm over all the academics at North Greenville. Uh, Previously was at Union University as an academic dean and uh, for uh, about eight years was on faculty at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've been married to Leah for 20 years, and we are the parents of four children, Georgia, Baxter, Eleanor, and Fuller. We call those the Finlings, 
And uh, this is the power of social media in the 21st century. I've, I've been calling my kids Finlings for years. I have literally been to third world countries where I have met missionaries for the first time who've asked me, how are the Finlings doing? Uh, because they picked up Twitter or, uh, or Facebook. Uh, but what I'm doing right now, for the most part, is uh, working on a theology series with my friends David Dockery and Chris Morgan, uh, 16-volume systematic theology series that we're the co-editors of that series. And, and within that series, I'm going to be co-authoring the volume on uh, the doctrine of the Christian life. So I'm very interested in uh, Christian life, ethics, sanctification, those sorts of questions. And so uh, I'm really one of these guys who's interested in lots of stuff, but an expert in almost nothing. So that's perfect for a podcast. <laughs> hey, man, that's, that is literally... Uh, well, that describes us to a T here that we, we know a lot about a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, or a little bit about a lot. That's actually a little bit more accurate. Um, we are discussing the history of the, the Baptist Church. Like you said, you've written mostly on history. Um, I picked up your book, and I would pull it up for our audience and be like, oh, this is the book. But, but this is the book, right? I live in the 21st century, guys. Um, I don't have a hard copy book to hold in my hand. So uh, uh, yeah, just talking about this, this book that you've released called The Baptist story. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? I thought it was thorough, um, but it was not so academic that a lay person couldn't pick it up and read it. I thought it was a, a very good, balanced book. Tell us a little about the book before I start picking your brain on some of these subjects and walking our, our, our audience through it. Well, I'm so encouraged to hear you say that about the book. And so uh, me and, and my two friends, Michael Haken and Tony Shute, worked on that book for several years. And what we really wanted to do was to write a Baptist history textbook that was different than other Baptist history textbooks on the market in that it's actually a textbook written for students. Mm -hmm. So what's typically happened is somebody who's been teaching for many years at kind of the end of the career writes what's kind of a big magnum opus where they brain dump everything they know about the Baptists, and it's a wonderful resource, and students hate reading it. Yeah. And what we <laughs> to do is, like, what's the sort of books that students and pastors would find interesting, and, and what do they need to know to understand the grand narrative of Baptist history, the major figures, themes, doctrines, and controversies? And so that's what we were going for. We were writing for students and for pastors, uh, not for scholars. And, and on occasion, when scholars have complained about it, what we've said is, hey, buddy, this isn't for you. There's lots of other books for you. Mm -hmm. This is for that Master of Divinity student, or it's for uh, that pastor who took a Baptist history class uh, 18 years ago, and, and they want to go back and have a little bit of refresher. So uh, we're very pleased with how the Lord has use the book as an entryway into the Baptist story for students and pastors. No, and, and it's wonderful. I'm, I'm, I really, really enjoyed the read. And I wanted to touch on a few of the things that are, are mentioned in the book. Um, you, at the top of your, I think it's your first chapter, you just talk about like, hey, when I say Baptist, this is what I mean. This is what I don't mean. There's so many different categories of Baptists. Can you lay that out for us? Because there's going to be lots of Baptists who are listening to this and like, I don't identify with that history. So maybe maybe we can uh, just kind of from the get define our terms. What do you mean by Baptist uh, in the most general overarching sense? And then we'll get into the, kind of the early formative history. So there's a sense in which Baptists are much broader than people realize, and another sense in which they're much more narrow than people realize. So in the broadest sense of the term, a Baptist is somebody who uh, believes that individuals should have a personal saving encounter with Jesus Christ, that sometime after that, hopefully not too long after that, 
they testify to that publicly through baptism by immersion, uh, believer's baptism by immersion. They become a part of a church that is made up of other believers who have been baptized, uh, and then they uh, live out their faith uh, as a local church community uh, that holds to some form of congregationalism where every member has a voice in kind of the vision of the church, and the church is autonomous uh, from other churches. They're sort of free to follow Christ uh, and and do whatever they feel like the Lord is leading them to do with open scriptures and callous knees. Uh, theologically, that's a Baptist. Now, what we would say is more narrowly, uh, there are obviously millions of Christians who that would describe who would never call themselves Baptist, especially mm-hmm. in a post-denominational world, where the average non-denominational church is Baptist but embarrassed about it. So uh, we would want to <laughs> add to that. That, uh, that a Baptist would be somebody who holds to those sorts of views, and they self-identify as a Baptist. It doesn't mean that the church has a Baptist on the name, but it means they understand they're a Baptist type of Christian as opposed to a uh, Presbyterian type of Christian or an Episcopal type of Christian or a Catholic type of Christian or a Pentecostal type of Christian. So there's got to be some sort of self-identification there where they recognize they are part of this stream in church history that has been called uh, Baptist. And that's helpful because, you know, when you just said like, hey, this actually describes most of uh, mainline evangelicalism, well, not mainline, but evangelicalism in general, yeah. this very large non-denominational kind of like, hey, we're autonomous churches, we're governed by our, our church body, we practice credo-baptism. It seems to be what we would, many of us in, the, uh, I guess, the Western evangelicalism would consider normal, but at the time of the formation of what was Baptist, uh, the, the Baptist church, it was really in stark contrast to everything else out there. I mean, we had your your Anglicans, your Presbyterians, your Lutherans. I mean, all these guys were credo-baptists or regenerative Baptists. Like, they believe that, you know, you, you baptize, you get saved. Uh, but, but this is a very different position. Can you tell us the emergence of the Baptist position and what made it so different in the contrasting of the history of its day? So there's a sense in which Baptists are very another sense in which Baptists are relatively recent in Christian history. So Baptists are very ancient in that if we go back all the way to the New Testament era and to the centuries right after the New Testament era, uh, the default was uh, believer's baptism. Now, I would argue as a Baptist that it was believer's baptism only. Hmm. Uh, But even if, for the sake of argument, I'm wrong about that, even our paedo-Baptist friends would agree that the default was the baptism of new believers uh, in the New Testament in the earliest centuries. And what happens is, by the time we get to uh, really about 500, uh, that default has been replaced by the default being the baptism of infants who are born into Christian families. They still believe in believer's baptism. When there's an adult convert, they're going to baptize them as a new convert. But the default has been raising children in Christian homes and baptizing them as babies. And that's going to remain the default for about a thousand years. And then during the time of the Reformation, uh, you have the Anabaptists who come about, and they're going to sort of return to that more ancient practice of a uh, confessor-type baptism of uh, new believers in Christ, or at the very least after you become a believer in Christ. About 100 years after the Anabaptist movement, you have the rise of the capital B Baptist movement. And uh, similarly to the Anabaptists, that's going to be a credo-Baptist tradition that says that belief comes before baptism, which is the beginning of belonging uh, to a local body of Christ. And so now, 
uh, again, a, a Baptist position is very common, even among people who have no idea uh, that they're Baptist. And so in that sense, it's it's relatively new, and it's this sort of great success story in denominational traditions. But every good Baptist who's worth her salt uh, would say that really Baptists, even though it's a newer movement in Christian history, we are returning to that ancient practice of the the normative practice, and I would even go so far as to say the exclusive practice, but at the very least the normative practice is uh, credo-baptism, that, that we baptize somebody uh, as their public profession of faith uh, rather than baptizing uh, the infant children of believers. That's right. Okay, so so uh, just to, to put legs on this, we've tossed around a lot of theological words, and I realized I didn't give a rubric for the discussion today of uh, what are the glossary of terms that we're using. Uh, Pedo-baptism is the baptism of children. Uh, Credo-baptism is the <laughs> baptism of believers, people who believe. So this is the, ba- the baptism of infants in particular, very small children. Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, infants uh, in being non-professing children. Uh, right. I, I, yeah, I, I apologize. And then, so, uh, credo-baptist would be, uh, like, we talk about the creeds and the confessions. The creeds are just basically right. I believe statements. So, a credo-baptist right. would be a person who's, like, waiting for a statement of faith. They're waiting for a profession before they're willing to baptize uh, a new believer. Um, right. And then your, your other option that I just kind of tossed out there briefly would be, like, regenerative baptism. That baptism actually saves you in some, some way. Um, um, anyway, so so as, as we're moving on through this, um, there you mentioned just now Anabaptist, and there's a very strong, um, just depending on who you're talking to, man, the Baptist movement came out of the Anabaptist movement. Others are going to say, hey, the Baptist came out of the Puritans. Uh, can you... Can you settle this debate a little bit for us on where did the Baptist movement come from? Where were these early emergings? Like, where are they getting their source material from? Yeah. So the Baptist movement literally arose out of radical Puritanism. Uh, They were radical Puritans who embraced believers' baptism by immersion. So there's really not gobs of debate over where the Baptists came from. The bigger question is, what sort of continuity is there with the Anabaptists, even though the Baptists came out of the Puritan movement? And uh, the reality is it's continuity and discontinuity. It is discontinuity in that uh, it's not the same movement. They don't agree all the same things that the Anabaptists agree with, and so very few of those early Baptists were pacifists who didn't believe in taking oaths, uh, who were opposed to Christians serving in government, uh, who, you know, they, they just weren't Anabaptists. On the other hand, there's no doubt that they were reading the same passages in Scripture and coming mm-hmm. to those credo-Baptist conclusions. And so there's definitely some theological affinity when it comes to defining who the church is and and how one enters into the Christian life and enters into the church. And so the best way to think about this is uh, the Puritans uh, gave birth to the Baptists, and the Anabaptists are our cousins in some way, uh, theologically. Uh, but Anabaptists and Baptists are not the same movement. They're, they're parallel movements in what we might call the broader free church tradition, uh, which would affirm uh, that you have to believe before you belong uh, in the local church. That's good. Okay, so in, the, in addition to that, we have, there's a, another distinction that happens really early on. You, you talked about the um, particular Baptist and the general Baptist. Did the Puritans 
or were they responsible for both General Baptist and Particular Baptist? Yep. Okay, so so yep. from the Puritans come both of these movements. Can you define both of those movements and maybe contrast them so people who who haven't heard those terms before can can walk with us through this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the General Baptists were actually the earliest capital B Baptists, and they were radical Puritans who around the same time, they were embracing what we would now call Baptist views. They were also embracing views very similar to Arminianism. Now, it would be a little anachronistic to say they were Arminians because it was literally happening at the same time that mm-hmm. Arminius was uh, kind of being defined, uh, if you will, as Arminianism. Uh, but but they were certainly Arminian-like views, and most notably uh, the idea that Jesus died for all people in exactly the same way. About a generation later, uh, you have another group of radical Puritans who become Baptists, but they don't break with the Calvinist majority tradition uh, among the Puritans. They continue to hold uh, to traditional Calvinism. Now, to be fair, it's a little bit anachronistic to call them particular Baptists because some of them were what we might today call four-point Calvinists. Uh, but the majority of them would have been what we would now call five-point Calvinists, and they certainly would have seen themselves as being Calvinistic as opposed to those general Baptists that would have seen themselves as being Arminian-like. And, uh, and the two groups kind of grew up together, and then they were of similar size uh, for the first couple of generations until uh, one begins to overtake the other, but that's uh, that's another part of the story. Yeah, so in this this uh, this idea of four-point Calvinism, again, just want to give the kind of foundation for n- new people watching, uh, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. That's the, the, the kind of five points of Calvinism, though Calvin's institutes are much more broad and vast than five uh, specific points. The typical four-point Calvinist is an Almoral Almoraldian, such a hard word to pronounce. The idea is that they don't hold to uh, uh, limited atonement. They see that Christ died for the world. So typical four-point Calvinist, again, just to, to flesh out, to give some some theology to people who are new to some of this uh, as we're walking through it. Um, so so you have these, these general Baptist and these particular Baptist, particular in that... Um, that, that seems interesting that they're called particular because the assumption is that they believe that Christ has died for a particular people, but you're saying, no, that was actually kind of a yeah. pejorative way of speaking of them because they didn't all hold to that. Is that right? right. That's right. That's right. But what they did is, is that they adopted a statement of faith called the 1644 London mm-hmm. Confession that did affirm particular redemption. And so, again, a majority of them believed that Jesus died especially for the elect, those whom he had chosen to be saved from before the foundation of the world. Uh, most of them believed that, and so for that reason, the particular Baptist label is uh, is what stuck. But what most scholars see now is that there was actually a lot of fluidity between those groups in the first generation. Lots of people kind of moving back and forth between the general and particular Baptist traditions, and that shouldn't surprise us. This was the era where it's just a couple of generations that people are reading the Bible and the vernacular for the first time, and mm-hmm. they wrestle those questions about predestination and who did Jesus die for, and can sincere Christians lose their faith, just like evangelicals wrestle with those things today. So there was a lot of movement between uh, those two different groups, but there were still two clear trajectories, one that was more Calvinistic and one that was more Arminian. How how friendly were they to one another? I mean, I think you wrote in your book, like, by 1660, there was 100 and, I think it was 130 particular Baptists and, like, 118 general Baptist churches, independent churches. Um, Like, were they, they... 
a lot of cross-pollination? Were they friendly with one another, or were they pretty resistant to each other early on in that, that, those formative years? It was complicated. So they definitely recognized each other as Baptists, and there were, in some places, some fraternal relations between the two. But it was also the case that the general Baptists uh, often networked with uh, the Anabaptists who were in the neighborhood because they agreed on, uh, on, on some of the basics of salvation. And the particular Baptists networked with some of the Puritans in the neighborhood because they had a very similar view of salvation. So uh, there definitely was a mutual respect and appreciation between the general and the particular Baptists. Uh, for that first generation. But what's going to happen is after the time of the English Civil War, the particular Baptist movement is just going to explode, and it's going to become the majority movement. The general Baptist movement is going to embrace some heretical ideas uh, about the deity of Christ and the nature of the atonement. So they're going to shrink out into to the point where they almost die. Uh, and so by the time we get to the 1700s, uh, the overwhelming majority of Baptists in England are going to be Calvinistic, and it's going to be just a small minority report that are Arminian. Okay, so, but around this same time, we're having um, uh, development here in the States, right? First colonies are being settled early 1600s. Uh, there's some some American Baptists that seem oddly similar but different in some other ways than our, our European brothers uh, overseas. Uh, the, the formation here takes place very—well, not t- doesn't take place all that differently, but it does evolve because of the Great Awakenings differently. Can you maybe speak into um, the role of the Great Awakening and how that formed the Baptist movement here in the States? Yeah, so there were Baptists in America— for about 150 years before the awakening came to the Baptists. Mm -hmm. And so this were there. uh, The majority of them were Calvinistic. There was a minority uh, that was Arminian uh, among the Baptists. But what happens is in kind of the last stage of what we now call the First Great Awakening, uh, really in the 1770s, uh, excuse me, in the 1750s, the Great Awakening really comes to the Baptist churches, and you have some Baptists that had already been there who embraced the revival. We call them the regular Baptists. Uh, they were regular. They meant like normal. They had already been there. And then you have the separate Baptists, and the separate Baptists uh, really come out of the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians in New England who uh, who experience revival, and then they go Baptist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're, they are uh, even more pro-revival than the regular Baptists. And so the, the, the separate Baptists are kind of an indigenous North American Baptist group. And those two groups, the separate Baptists that are birthed out of the revival and the regular Baptists that date back to the colonial era, it's really out of the mix of those two groups that we get the modern denominations like what's now the American Baptist churches in the USA and the Southern Baptist Convention uh, predominantly in the South. Those are the two movements that kind of uh, come together and, and become the parents of those modern Baptist denominations in America. Gotcha. And, and, and though we, we skipped really far forward in talking about Great Awakening stuff, that, that really just would not have been possible had not it not been for the religious liberties that were fought for to allow this kind of diversity of beliefs to take place. So can you maybe give us a little bit of the backstory of Roger Williams and his role in religious liberty here in America? So Roger Williams is one of the more famous uh, 
individuals whenever we look back to the American colonial era. So he's originally in Massachusetts, where uh, his background was just simply as an Anglican minister. Uh, he becomes a radical Puritan. Uh, but along the way, uh, he runs afoul of the leadership in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, largely because of his views of how we should relate to the Native Americans. Uh, he wanted to have more of a partnership sort of relationship uh, with them. The majority Puritans wanted to have more of a paternalistic relationship uh, towards the Native Americans. And so uh, Williams gets banished from uh, Massachusetts Bay. He goes to what is now uh, Rhode Island and becomes one of the founders of uh, what becomes the colony of Rhode Island. And around the same time that that's happening, uh, around 1639, uh, Williams becomes a Baptist. And he's not a Baptist for long, uh, but he plants what's now called the First Baptist Church in America. That is actually the church's name, not the First Baptist Church of, of Providence, Rhode Island, but the Hashtag First Baptist Church of America. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a not humble brag. So he starts that church. But what uh, but what Williams becomes famous for, because he embraces Baptist views, which would have never flown in, uh, in Massachusetts Bay, and because Providence becomes a haven, not just for Baptists, but for Quakers and, and for others who hold a minority views, uh, he writes on the importance of religious liberty. And he talks about how uh, the church is God's garden. And, uh, and, and, and the church has uh, built up a hedge around God's garden uh, to protect it. And that hedge is, is freedom of conscience, liberty of conscience, what we might now call religious liberty. And he talks about this wall or this hedge of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. And that same language is what Thomas Jefferson is going to play off of uh, 150 years later in his letter to the Danbury Baptists, where he talks about the wall of separation between church and state uh, that we have in the First Amendment. And so Roger Williams is one of the, if not the most important, uh, great North American pioneers of that idea of religious liberty. It wasn't new to him. The Baptists in England believed in religious liberty too. But in part through the influence of Roger Williams, that idea that uh, every individual is accountable to God as an individual for their beliefs, and it's not the right of the state or any other external group to coerce uh, faith or to define uh, the faith. Uh, because of that, uh, Roger Williams is going to be one of the great heroes of the history of religious liberty in America, and Baptists are going to continue, even up to the present day, uh, to be stalwart champions of religious liberty and the idea of free churches in a free state. And this isn't just religious liberty for Christians. It's not just like just Christians can practice this. It seemed as if he was even fighting for like Muslims, like which would have been very contrary to the position of the day. He, he said even Jews, Turks, Muslims, and heretics uh, should have religious freedom. So it's not just religious toleration of different types of Christian denominations. It mm -hmm. was full religious liberty, uh, even the freedom to not believe, uh, which would have just been anathema, uh, unheard of to the uh, to the Puritans. And he's not he's not a syncretist. He wasn't like, hey, we're all worshiping the same God. We're all getting to the same. He was nope. just literally saying they have the God given right to live in rebellion until he comes in judgment. Like, that's just... He had the same Calvinistic views of salvation as the Puritans. Right. Uh, he just believed that, for him, this was a Great Commission sort of argument. People have to have the right to be wrong so that they can be persuaded of the truth of the gospel.
Praise God. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about these other Baptists that were kind of emerging around the time of, I suppose, Roger William and after. We, we jumped so far forward to Great Awakening. I've got to, uh, you know, pull back here. Sixth Principal Baptist and Fifth Monarch Baptist. I think I'm saying both of those right. Can you explain who they were and, and their emergence in here? You're, you're chuckling at me. Did I, did I put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable? No, these are fun groups. Yeah, they so are. So the Sixth the six principal Baptists, that's going to be uh, the general Baptist. They are going to eventually, based on their reading of uh, Hebrews chapter 10, I think it is, adopt these six simple principles of what it means to be a Baptist, kind of like a confession of faith. Uh, and so they're going to say that, uh, you know, we have to believe in these six things, but it, interestingly enough, does not mention uh, the uh, the Trinity or the blood atonement in those six things. And so again, oh it's kind goodness. of a denominator sort of view, which is going to open the door to heresy. Uh, but they're going to be kind of that generation of general Baptists that almost dies out. The fifth monarchist Baptists, some of my favorite, not because they're right, but because they're weird and interesting, uh, they're going to be those particular Baptists that were part of the fifth monarchist movement uh, which was a cross-denominational movement that, based on their reading of various eschatological texts, uh, believed that the kingdom of God was about to be ushered in on earth. Uh, this would have been a post-millennial sort of movement. And so they were convinced that by uh, removing the king and eliminating the monarchy in England, uh, that was opening up the door for Jesus to return and to establish his theocratic rule among the nations. And so uh, they were actually anti-government conspirators. Uh, so th- if you think about like the worst sort of person wearing a Jesus Saves t-shirt uh, marching on the Capitol on January 6th, uh, 2021 in America, that, that was the fifth monarchist movement. They wanted to uh, quite literally overthrow uh, the British government and make Jesus the theocratic king, not only of England, but of all the nations. Nice. Not controversial at all the way we fostered that. When, uh, when did the Baptists start to uh, practice the regulative principle? Like, was that, has that always been, I mean, I would assume part of the Puritans background is like, hey, there's so much tradition we've got to, we really have to purify the church. Uh, when did the regulative principle become such a strong, oh, first of all, define the regulative principle and then explain to us when did that begin to, uh, to, to play a strong role in the formulation of Baptist liturgy? So the regulative principle is the idea that uh, our worship should be formed by what is clearly taught or at the very least uh, obviously discerned from Scripture, and uh, even especially from the New Testament. So that this is very much New Covenant worship. We do what's commanded in the New Covenant or what is strongly implied by the New Covenant. Uh, one of the Baptist's great innovations, so first to answer the question, Baptists believed it from the very beginning. But one of the great Baptist innovations uh, with the regulative principle is the Puritans would have very narrowly defined that, like I just did, as applying to public worship. So this is about singing. It's about prayer. It's about confession. Uh, it's about uh, how you practice the Lord's Supper, things like that. Baptists expanded their definition of the regulative principle and said it not only applies to worship, but it applies to all of church life. And so we should order our churches like they're commanded in the New Testament. We should baptize like they're commanded in the New Testament. And 
So it's actually the Baptists who have uh, the most rigorous definition of the regulative principle, because for them, it's really not the regulative principle of worship, though that's implied. It's the regulative principle of church life, Mm -hmm. worship being a part of church life. So that's why uh, all those arguments between the Baptists and the Credo-Baptists over baptism or over congregationalism versus Presbyterianism versus having a bishop, or over religious liberty, uh, Baptists were making exegetical arguments. Now, we can quibble with some of their exegesis, perhaps, but they were making exegetical arguments because they believed if it was not taught in the New Covenant Scriptures, Baptists ought not to do it, and nobody else should full stop. So it was a regulative principle, really, of the Christian life, uh, and church life in particular, not just uh, the regulative principle of worship, uh, like we might find with Presbyterians and Congregationalists. Okay, so uh, we, we've, we've done an entire episode on the 1689 London Baptist Confession, so feel no need to go in, in great detail on these two, but the 1644 um, Articles of Civil Way, 1689, can you lay out those for the particular Baptist, so people who are watching go, okay, these they have a set of uh, beliefs and creeds, and well, I say creeds, uh, uh, statements of faith that I can go and read and really figure out what they believe on different issues and different subjects. What would be the places to uh, explain those yeah. those those articles for us? So here's the way to think about this: uh, the 1644 Confession was an attempt for particular Baptists to say, this is who we are, and we're not like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So we're a new movement, we're adopting a confession of faith, and we're saying we are not Anabaptists, and it's we like, are not like the Puritans. It's so funny, it's at the beginning of every single statement of faith in that era, like the Augsburg Confession came out, and it's like, oh, hey guys, just want to let you know, uh, first article, we're not Anabaptist, so stop saying wanna... that. <laughs> so 1644, the way to think about it is Baptists are a movement, And they're saying, this is who we are, and we ain't nobody else. That's right. But a generation later, with the 1689 Confession, uh, which was actually written in 1677 and then publicly adopted in 1689, with that confession, uh, you know, the, the, the movement has matured by a generation, and they were actually trying to define themselves similarly to other Puritan type traditions. So, with 1689, that is a revision of a Congregationalist Confession of Faith, uh, which was a revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So instead of defining themselves as this unique movement that's different than everybody else, by 1689, what the Baptists were trying to say is, we're part of the Puritan tradition, we're just that part of the tradition that dunks instead of sprinkling babies. Uh, we're that part of the tradition that holds to believers' baptism. So there's a lot of continuity between 1644 and 1689, but the confessions were written for completely different purposes. 1644 was, we're the new kids on the block, and here's what we believe. 1689 was, we swear we're not weird, we're a lot like you guys, except we dunk new believers instead of sprinkling babies. Yeah, so again, I feel like we have to back up, but um, can you tell us about uh, Blunt's role in in baptism, in immersion, in in that kind of thing? Because I, if I if I read your book correctly, it, it seems as if every other tradition or the majority of traditions are like marking people with a cross, and that's baptism. They're they're like they're sprinkling people. They're not immersing them into water. And now right. in my Western world, like when someone says baptism, I go, "Oh, you mean immersion?" Like that's just. That's just, we've, you, you guys have won that battle, okay? The Baptist, like in the modern vernacular, it's like, it's in everyone's mind. I say, you guys, I'm a part of a Southern Baptist church, but 
only of of a year and a half, so I haven't yet gotten used to saying we. But uh, uh, the, the the Baptist movement. I mean, when people think baptism, that's what they think of immersion. They don't think of any of the spritzing or the crosses. So explain Blunt's role in all of this. Yeah. So Richard Blunt was a businessman who was part of the uh, the first known particular Baptist church in London. Uh, that church was practicing believers' baptism, but they had not yet settled on immersion. Uh, because Blunt could speak Dutch, uh, they knew that there were some Anabaptists uh, in Holland who were dunking new converts instead of sprinkling new converts. And so they sent him down there kind of as an emissary uh, to learn about the Anabaptists and, and why they were practicing the full immersion of believers. So Blunt spends some time down in Holland. He comes back. He shares his experience. It's unclear if he actually got dunked in Holland or if he just learned about uh, the importance of getting dunked. And so that's one of the reasons we debate the Anabaptist connections. But what we do know is that Blunt comes back and he shares with the church's pastors uh, the exegetical basis for believers' baptism by immersion. And almost all the members of that church uh, submitted to a rebaptism. They they had already been sprinkled as babies and sprinkled as believers. Now they were dunked as believers to uh, to demonstrate that uh, that they were really following the New Testament commands. And that happens around 1640 or 1641. And since that time period, uh, the dunking, the immersion, the dipping of a new believer has been the standard Baptist practice, whereas before, the uh, the mode of baptism didn't matter as much as the timing, that it be a believer and not a mm-hmm. baby. After 1640 and uh, Richard Blunt, it becomes standard to say that baptism means immersion, or at the very least, immersion is what best captures the uh, the New Testament teaching on baptism. Okay, so we've been talking about the the uh, particular Baptist in 1644 in the 1689. Let's talk about the general Baptists. What were their statements of faith that I feel like are not as well known? But like they're definitely they're definitely not as well known. So in 1660 they adopt the uh, standard confession of faith. Uh, so that's kind of in between the particular Baptist 1644 and 1689, and it's just a summary of general Baptist belief. If you read it, it they sound like Baptists who are Arminians, and it's still the case today that many free will Baptists in the USA will look to the Standard Confession uh, with great appreciation. Uh, but what I think is really the neatest of the uh, the General Baptist Confessions of Faith is 1691, the Orthodox Creed is what they called it. The Orthodox Creed was a uh, their revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but uh, they revise out most of the Calvinism, and, and they revise out, obviously, paedo-baptism and—, and uh, Presbyterian-type polity and things like that. Uh, but what's great about the Orthodox Creed is it's uh, the first, and to this day still one of the very few, Baptist confessions that explicitly uh, affirms and commends the uh, the ecumenical creedal tradition in the early church. And so they say it's a good thing to know the Apostles' Creed and to know Nicaea and to teach those to your children and to recite those as a congregation. And so there was a recognition by those general Baptists at that time, probably because some, well, I, not probably, because some of them were flirting with heretical views about mm-hmm. the deity of Christ, the Trinity, and the atonement. 
uh, those that adopted the Orthodox Creed, they said, hey, let's look back to the early church. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Let's learn from the church fathers on those doctrines while still being Baptists. And so even though I'm not a, uh, a general Baptist, I deeply appreciate uh, the Orthodox Creed. It's probably my all-time favorite Baptist confession of faith because of that desire to be both, both Baptist, strongly convictionally Baptist, but to also be lowercase c Catholic and to recognize that Amen. Baptists are part of that tradition, and, and we want to uh, echo the, uh, the fathers of the Church when it comes to what they said about the, uh, the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Yeah, praise God. That's great. Now, uh, to that same point, um, in that statement, it's the the General Baptist Standard Statement. Is that the first recorded age of accountability? I mean, without without they didn't call it in, in such terms, but like this idea that if a child dies in infancy, like their like their eternal state isn't determined by baptism. Like, is is this the first time this is brought up? I'm not sure if it's the first time or not. I know that Anabaptists were also bringing it up around the same time and sure. possibly early. So I think it might be the earliest with the Baptists, but I'm fairly certain that Anabaptists were talking about it before then. Okay. So uh, Thomas Grantham, uh, one of the first systematic theologies for the Baptist Church, Thomas Grantham, um, y- you write... Um, uh, one second. Yeah, you said in your, your book, that's right, you said that he was an Armenian, but not an Armenian like his day, like in his day. Um, can you explain, like, what would be this version of Armenianism in, uh, yeah. in in Thomas Grantham versus what was Armenianism in his day? Because there was, like, a form of, um, like, a libertarian free will that was, like, hinging on heresy, uh, and there right. was, like, an, an Armenianism that is, like, quite orthodox. Can you maybe distinguish those two things? Yeah, so many Armenians of that day were becoming rationalistic. Mm-hmm. And so for them, they were they were very influenced by the Enlightenment. They were beginning to think that the Trinity was illogical. They were beginning to adopt what we might call quasi-Pelagian views of human nature that were born good or at least neutral, and then something has to make us bad. And so, uh, you know, being saved is, is not about turning from sins and trusting Jesus, but recognizing that you're already a child of God and things like that. And Grantham comes along, and in some ways, he's not a Wesleyan, but in some ways he anticipates what's going to happen later with the Wesleys because he affirms total depravity, and and he believes in a substitutionary atonement. And he thinks that uh, men are uh, fallen in their nature and must turn from their sins and cast themselves upon Christ's mercy. And if I remember correctly, Grantham even flirts with the idea of eternal security. Mm-hmm. And uh, he at the very least thinks it's very rare for someone to uh, fall from grace and lose their salvation. And so in the same way, we might describe somebody as being a, a moderate Calvinist, because maybe they hold to predestination, but they pair that with a general atonement. In some ways, he's a moderate Arminian, because he's still holding to what uh, many of his colleagues would have said Calvinistic or Calvinistic type ideas. And in that way, again, he's anticipating the uh, the Wesleys, who are going to be strong on original sin and mm-hmm. strong on substitutionary atonement and justification by faith alone, while also holding to uh, Arminianism uh, at the same time. 
Yeah, I mean, anyone who has like a nuanced position today can understand what it's like to be a guy like this, where it's like, uh, yes, but no. Like, uh, you know, you're, 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 if, you're, if you're not a Calvinist, your Calvinist friends think you're Armenian, but if you're not Armenian, your Arminianist friends think you're a Calvinist. So just depending on which vantage point you're coming well, from, you're not, you're not toting that party line real well. And Josh, let me say this. There's something deeply Baptist about this. Uh, Baptists certainly affirm the value of systems. I, I teach and write systematic theology, mm-hmm. but for Baptists, scriptures trump systems, mm-hmm. and uh, and we never want to be so taken with a system that we default to its answers, uh, rather than opening scriptures and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to uh, to show us. Uh, what's really there, uh, even if sometimes it doesn't fit neatly in a system. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's not uncommon to find Baptist Arminians who hold to eternal security and to find Calvinists who hold to a general atonement. And it's wrestling with what Scripture says instead of defaulting to uh, what a system might say. So you've got Thomas Grantham who is writing, um, expecting these, these Arminians who are just like kind of spinning off into heresy. But then you've got another guy on the other side, John Gill, who is, I think you attribute to as the the hyper-Calvinist guy. Can you explain who he is and and what this hyper-Calvinism was and and what it was coming to? So hyper-Calvinism, first of all, would be somebody who affirms the five points of Calvinism, Uh, but it's somebody who goes further than that. Uh, It's somebody who is going to hold to the idea of eternal justification, uh, that we're saved before the foundation of the world because we've been chosen from before the foundation of the world. Uh, Many hyper-Calvinists are going to say that uh, we cannot believe unless we are convinced we're one of the elect, that we have to have a warrant to trust Christ. It would be presumptuous to trust Christ if you didn't think uh, that you were among the elect. They're going to deny the free offer of the gospel that we call upon all men and women to trust Christ. They would say we should only call upon men and women who we think are elect to trust Christ. And then many hyper-Calvinists, but not John Gill, are going to be antinomian, uh, which is to say they're going to be against God's moral law. Mm -hmm. And they're going to say that uh, if you're saved, you're under grace, you're not under the law. Now, they're, they're not libertines who think that you can go do whatever you want to, but they're going to say that the, the moral law is no longer applying in the age of grace, that, that we just follow Christ instead of uh, paying attention to the Ten Commandments and other commands that we find uh, in Scripture. So John Gill is going to be kind of the godfather of Baptist hyper-Calvinists. He's not a consistent hyper-Calvinist. He's actually a little bit more evangelistic than he's sometimes credit for. But because he did hold some hyper-Calvinist views, and because he was friends with hyper-Calvinists, and because he was by far the most important Baptist theologian of his era, he kind of gives cover to all the hyper-Calvinists. And so for that reason, he's kind of gone down in history as being the arch-hyper-Calvinist among Baptists. He was probably a moderate— The patron saint of of, of hyper-Calvinism. So he was probably a moderate hyper-Calvinist, but again, he's definitely the patron saint of Baptist hyper-Calvinists because of uh, just his influence, and then he lent credibility to the movement, even if he was not consistently hyper-Calvinist himself. Well, I know I've only got like uh, eight minutes before I have to let you go, so I want to cover, you know, one of the hot-button issues today, uh, talking about slavery uh, and the Baptist church. 
probably here in the States and in Europe, uh, we have divisions of the Baptist church that are like, hey, slavery good. Other sections that are saying, hey, slavery bad. So let's talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, Um, both the prohibitionists and those who are fighting for and kind of explain that to the audience as well. Yeah, so uh, Baptists, like Christians in general, were all over the map over uh, race-based slavery during the era of the transatlantic slave trade. In England, uh, pretty early on, like other evangelicals in England, I think people like William Wilberforce and the Wesleys, uh, the Baptists become anti-slavery. And so uh, they're they're ahead of the curve uh, for us as Americans. And so throughout uh, the English version of the Great Awakening, what they just simply called the Evangelical Awakening, uh, Baptists were almost uniform in calling for the end first of the transatlantic slave trade and then for the uh, the emancipation of slaves in the British Empire. In America, uh, during the First Great Awakening, there's this brief window where not just Baptists, but Methodists and Presbyterians uh, really flirt with anti-slavery. And we see this really right after the American Revolution. For about 20 years, uh, you had Baptist associations that were even going on the record saying that uh, Christian slave owners should free all their slaves. But what happens in America is you have the invention of the cotton gin in the early 1790s. And for the first time, slavery is profitable. You can actually make a lot of money off of slave labor rather than uh, what used to be the case, which was you would spend as much money taking care of your slaves as you would make off of your uh, staple good. So the cotton gin changes the game, and Baptists, to their great shame, almost overnight flip on slavery. And they go from it being a terrible evil to modifying that to saying, well, it's a necessary evil because God is using uh, slavery to bring the faith to these enslaved Africans, uh, to it being a positive good. Uh, Look at all these benefits we have for them. They're better off here than they were in Africa. And so that sort of idea uh, dominates not just Baptists, but Southern evangelicalism, including the Baptists. So between uh, the mid-1830s and the mid-1840s, all the major Southern denominations split down the middle over slavery. Uh, they separate from their northern brethren. Uh, that happens in 1845, whenever the uh, the Baptists in the South separate from uh, the rest of the Baptists and become uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. And so that's one of the reasons that we have a debate now over whether we should retain the name Southern Baptist Convention uh, is because that name, though it is a regional name, and thus saying it should be neutral— Historically, it was a regional name because of uh, the Southern defense of slavery and arguing that it was uh, at best a, uh, a necessary evil. Uh, and so uh, that's very much a part of our heritage as Southern Baptists. Yeah, and and there is, like, to your point, like, yeah, we've got this entire, you know, denomination of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest mission-sending organization on the planet who's doing all this great good that's really—I don't also want to make it out as if these guys are, like, the epitome of all evil and racism, because, again— um, they're yeah. products of their time, and Baptists were abolitionists, many of them as well. So we can have a very myopic view of Baptist history and just go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that one time where they really screwed up? Yes. Uh, uh, but but there are there's much a much broader story to the Baptist tradition of abolitionist as well. 
there there were some Southern Baptist there excuse me there were some Baptist abolitionists, uh, especially in England. Uh, Spurgeon being one of the most famous ones. Uh, he is a most, rather famous, yeah. Most Baptist abolitionists in the South tended to leave the South. So on the one hand, we do want to say the Baptist tradition. Uh, left plenty of space for those who were opposed to slavery. Uh, but as Southern Baptists in particular, we do have to wrestle with the fact that they weren't our Baptists. They were the yeah. other Baptists that we needed to do that. Uh, but to your point, I do think it is the case that uh, that uh, talking about slavery does not tell the whole story of mm-hmm. Southern Baptist uh, but we certainly should never uh, hesitate to say that it was because of race-based slavery that we had a Southern Baptist Convention. That's good. Hey, so um, let, let's let's finish off like this. What we like to do is we like to give our, our guests an opportunity to give like that that last golden nugget, if you will, that last thought where you have people walking away, meditating about, thinking about whether it's about the the, the Baptist history, where they should start studying, uh, where they should get involved, uh, how you would uh, encourage them to think uh, about the Baptist church. Any of those things would be a great time to, to kind of think through that. For, for the rest of you who are watching, I'm just going to take a moment just to remind you we're entirely crowdfunded. Uh, if you feel uh, blessed by this video or other content that we've made, uh, we encourage you to give the links of the description. Uh, there is a link to the Kingdom of the Cults book. It's a book club that we are going through uh, with Walter Martin. He wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. We've finished Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Jehovah's Witnessism. <laughs> do you see what I'm going to do there? Uh, uh, the Theosophy. Uh, we just did a chapter on Buddhism recently, and we are uh, working our way through that book. If you want to be a part of that book club, all you have to do is read the chapter of that week, jump on the book club with us, and have that discussion. Uh, it's those five bucks a month. You can be a part of Patreon. It's really cool. It helps keeps the lights on. Uh, but yeah, let me toss that question back over to you. Uh, what, what would you say? What's that little golden nugget you would want people thinking about meditating on as they're, they're going on their day? <laughs> hey, for those of you who are Baptists or those of you who want to know more about Baptists, uh, remember this. There's no such thing as a perfect denominational tradition. The grass isn't greener somewhere else. It's just different grass. Uh, but there's a lot to rejoice in about the Baptist tradition. We have consistently cared for the supreme authority of Scripture. We've said that the church matters. We've championed religious liberty for all people, and we've championed the spread of the gospel here, there, and everywhere. And so uh, while we should never be inappropriately proud of the Baptist tradition with any sort of denominational idolatry, uh, neither should we be ashamed to be Baptist. God has worked through Baptist people, and my prayer is that he would continue to do so until Jesus comes back. Uh, praise God, man. That's really encouraging. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. You can pick up the book that we've discussed uh, in the description of the video, The Baptist Story. Great book. You should go check it out. Links in the description. Uh, for the rest of you, you want to tune in to more episodes of Remnant Radio Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. We do a live episodes uh, where we discuss uh, church history, theology, and the gifts of the Spirit. Anyway, guys, blessings, and we'll see you next time. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, if you like this video, we actually put together a playlist that has a whole bunch of content just like what is in this video. So I hope you enjoy, and if you got a little bit of extra spare time, maybe check out some of those other videos. 
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.